This season of The Francis Effect is brought to you by Liturgical Press in Collegeville, Minnesota. Liturgical Press is a trusted publisher of resources on liturgy, scripture, theology, and spirituality, evolving to serve the changing needs of the Christian church. They produce resources for pastoral leaders, teachers, engaged learners, and all readers looking for quality books on faith and culture. Lit Press books are available at your favorite book retailer and online at litpress.org. That's litpress.org. This season of The Francis Effect is sponsored in part by Franciscan Media, seeking to spread the gospel in the spirit of St. Francis. Franciscan Media publishes books by authors like Richard Rohr, Heather King, and Ronald Rollheiser. Get 25% off your first order in the store when you use the code FRANCISFX, that's Francis, the letter F, and the letter X, at franciscanmedia.org. That's franciscanmedia.org. Hello and welcome to the Francis Effect Podcast. This episode is for late December 2018. My name is David Dalt and I host a radio show called Things Not Seen about culture and faith. I'm here with my friend Dan Haran. He's a Franciscan friar of Holy Name Province in New York and he's an assistant professor of systematic theology and spirituality at Catholic Theological Union in Chicago. Every couple of weeks we get together to bring you commentary on current events from a perspective informed by our Catholic faith. We also have bonus segments for you friends of Frank who support the show by donating each month on Patreon. Every couple of weeks, we add a bit of bonus audio, an extended discussion or interview. If you'd like to hear them, you can go to patreon.com slash francisfxpod and become a monthly supporter of the show. Before we get started, we also wanted to remind you that you can follow us on Twitter and Facebook at FrancisFXPod. That's Francis, the letters F and X, and the word pod. And if you want to send us a question or comment, you can always talk to Frank by emailing FrancisEffectPod at gmail.com. That's effect, the word spelled out, E-F-F-E-C-T. We also want to thank our season sponsors, Liturgical Press and Franciscan Media. They help us to make this show possible, so please show them your support and let them know that you appreciate it. Thank you. Dan, how have you been? David, pretty good. How are you? Yeah, I, I am recovering, and let me explain about that. So I I was in New York last week. and uh, Big Apple. And there was with my friends from Commonweal. You know, I do the Commonweal podcast. I've heard of this Wheel of Common. Yes, and uh, they, had a, they had a Christmas party, and I was happy to be there with them and to catch up, and we did Secret Santa, and they gave me a T-shirt about how New York pizza is the best pizza in the world, and I said, I'm looking forward to wearing this in Hyde Park and getting beat up. <laughs> uh, but uh, as I've talked about before on the program, anytime that I do anything that's wildly social, there's, a, there's an opportunity cost, and so I spent the weekend kind of recovering. And my wife was, uh, and my family was very understanding. We had a very social weekend. My children went to a birthday party on Saturday, which depleted my batteries all the more. And so on Sunday, basically, we had a very low-power day. And we we talk a lot about spoon theory in my family. And I had zero spoons. And now, thanks to a, a very understanding family and a, and a real Sabbath on Sunday, I've got some spoons back so I can come into the week with a little bit more emotional energy than I normally would have after a big trip like that. So I'm I'm thankful for recovery in all senses, and I'm thankful especially for feeling good on a Monday, which is not always what happens to me. <laughs> well, I'm kind of recovering myself, actually. I I uh, was flying out after a faculty meeting here in Chicago out to San Diego uh, for a, a board of trustees meeting out there. And uh, 
noticed throughout the day on Thursday that I was getting a bit of a sore throat oh, and, no. and uh, a stuffiness in the head. You, you, the typical winter, fall co- head cold. And, and fortunately, it just stayed up there, which was which was great because that's, from, from my vantage point anyways, pretty manageable. You know, you can day quill it a little bit. You can kind of clear the sinuses as best you can. And so, you know, came back on Saturday night and yesterday, Sunday, whereas you guys were kind of on the low, low down, trying to recover and, and take it easy, we were ramping things up uh, in the friary because um, everyone's kind of going out for the holidays. And so uh, one of the friars I live with is um, originally from El Salvador, and his parents moved from the United States back to El Salvador now, some time ago, so he's going there. Uh, he actually left at 4 o'clock this morning to catch a series of flights down there. And, and some of the other friars are, are going to the respective families and, and, and hometowns and so forth. And so Sunday was our kind of sending off uh, celebration. We always do something. Typically, the last few years, a new Star Wars movie has come out in around this time. And so we've always gone out as a house. But this year, there, there wasn't any because the Han Solo movie came out in May inexplicably. Um, I still haven't seen it and I don't know that I want to see it. So there's that. But um, so what we decided to do was uh, just kind of check out some kind of touristy stuff downtown. And so we went to Millennium Park and we rode the bus downtown. We were going to go ice skating, but apparently everybody and their cousin on a Sunday in December in Chicago decided to do that. And so as it happens, I grew up ice skating and I have my own pair of skates. And so I brought them and it turned out, and this, I felt really bad about this, that the line was so long, it was almost a two hour line for people to rent skates, you know, cause I think everybody wanted that photo op and, and the Maggie Daly park and so forth. And so I ended up doing a couple rounds, you know, skating around the loop myself and that so, bye. <laughs> bye. Yeah, no, well, well, I got out there cause I had my skates. I put them on I, and I started skating and then, you know, the guys who were going to go rent skates went and, and I said, Oh, this is taking a while. And I, came back and they had come back and, and the line was just, you know, it was ridiculous. So, so we ended up going and having kind of an early dinner and then going up to the Lincoln Park Zoo where they put on this light show and this, this sort of thing, very family friendly. It was really, it was fun. And, and all of this was, was, you know, very inexpensive. It was, it was kind of free Chicago holiday thing. So it was kind of just fun to be together as, as people were getting ready to to go their separate ways. Did you make a stop by the Christmas market downtown? You know, it's funny you should mention that. We did not. We did not. We, we, we saw it. We went past it on the bus. But I have a friend coming into town this week to visit, and, and I think we're going to stop by. For those of you who are not in the Chicago area, let me give you a little bit of orientation here. So right around one of the government buildings downtown, I believe it's the Daily Center. I think it is. Yeah. yeah so they, they take the entire plaza of the Daily Center and they turn it into kind of a German-style Christmas market, which they call the Christkindlmarkt or Christkindle Market. And what's interesting is that on the periphery of this, in addition to all the, the eggnog and the, the glue vine and all that exactly. stuff that you can get in the pretzels, there are also religious displays. So there's a creche. But then also there's a huge menorah, and now there's a large red A, which is put out by the atheists. Oh, I haven't seen that one yet. Yeah, so you have to come in. There are religious, uh, sort of religious turf wars that happen on the fringes of this Christmas market, which is interesting for me as a person who works with religious liberty issues and and thinking about religion and the law. Uh, I love to kind of talk to the people behind those 
various uh, displays. But it's it's a very overcrowded, family-friendly <laughs> time that is, if you're someone like me, exhausting. But it's it's fun. <laughs> it's fun to go with the kids. It, it can be pretty dense. It's probably good we didn't go yeah. over the weekend because you know the ice skating rink was was pretty packed. And uh, I went I went to the market two years ago, um, and I had another friend in town and. You know, you get your hot chocolate or you get your glufine and, uh, you know, that's that's fine. You get your little ceramic mug and this sort of thing. But I, I don't, you know, you're just jam-packed into this space. It's truly a gift and, that keeps on giving. Yeah. I mean, in terms of... In terms of just emotional distress. <laughs> <laughs> it's a gift that you want to return. <laughs> so, well, to our listeners, we, we should probably just say something. Um, to our tremendous surprise... Nobody seems to have noticed that we didn't put out an episode two weeks ago. Um, and so let let us just begin this remark with a mea culpa, mea culpa, mea maxima culpa, just to give you all an update. Um, David and I had scheduled a episode to come out two weeks ago. And as it so happened, there was a series of unfortunate events or quite literally a perfect storm that took place. Weather events here in Chicago. Yeah, weather events. And, and the day that we had time scheduled for uh, here in the studio uh, that we had kind of planned months in advance happened to fall on this day where there was this kind of freak snow ice storm. Everything was shut down. Schools were closed. Including the, the – so we, we record this at the Lutheran School of Theology in Chicago, and it was shut down during the time that we were – supposed to be recording. And unfortunately, by dint of both of our busy schedules, we didn't have another time to get in to record it, and then Thanksgiving happened. So yeah. so we're getting back to this, and we apologize for that, but we will, we're, we're talking about maybe trying to do a, a makeup between now and the end of the year. We'll see what we can do, and if not, we'll do a bonus one into the next season so that there's, so you'll get your 16 this year. Yeah. The bad news was uh, we didn't have an episode two weeks ago. The good news is we end the regular season with an excellent guest today, Dr. Kate Ward from Marquette University, a moral theologian who's going to talk with us about economic inequality in the Catholic Church, you know, the kind of last tension and frustration that we're we're addressing in this thematic season. And, and that is just an awesome conversation. Kate's just a fantastic person. So we're excited to have her with us. So, Dan, what are you doing for Christmas? I am going back to the great metropolitan area of Utica, New York. People may be familiar with that for absolutely no reason. I know it from The Office. That's it Oh, yeah. It was one of the branches of Dunder Mifflin in That's The Office. right. It's where Karen goes and becomes manager, and it's where Jim and Dwight and Michael go to sabotage because there's a— apparently Karen at one point was trying to steal Stanley away— and and that is by far my family's favorite episode of The Office, and we reference it all the time, including Dwight when they're finally caught trying to steal the, the copier and getting stuck in the stairwell. They're all in Karen's office on the couch, and Dwight keeps saying, we will burn Utica to the ground. And so every now and then we say that when we get together. My brothers and I, we will burn Utica to the ground. Listeners can't see it, but I'm grinning from ear to ear right now. <laughs> there are so many things that I love about you, Father Dan Haran, but right now the fact that you have an office connection like that and you can quote it like that, my entire family loves you right now. That, I am a big fan of The Office. I've seen uh, the whole series probably three times all the way through. Yeah, I, I won't I won't disclose how many times my wife and I watched it, but it was a staple in our household and especially when we were expecting our first our firstborn child. We were on constant office rotation. Oh, that's awesome. Because it was kind of comfort food for us. So 
Yeah, we, we, we quote the office a lot back and forth to each other. So Utica, that's wonderful. And uh, and so you'll have a chance to be with your family for several days, I yeah, hope? Yeah, yeah. I'm very excited about that. So yeah, I, I head home at the end of this week, and um, which gives me quite a few days around the Christmas season. You know, I'm the oldest of four boys, and the two middle brothers are both married and, and have kids, young kids. Uh, one lives in Syracuse, New York. One lives in Rochester. And since they have, you know, their own families and in-laws and kids and, and, and Christmas and everything, um, slowly over time, our, our tradition has moved more away from the kind of local family joint on Christmas morning to another day. And that's really kind of become Christmas Eve. So my brothers will come in with their, their families on Christmas Eve. And my youngest brother, who lives in Utica, and my parents live in Utica, and I will we will all get together. And then I have... You know, I usually help out of my home parish, so I'll be at the parish of Our Lady of Lourdes in, in Utica for Christmas Eve. I'll have the 6 o'clock Mass at, at Our Lady of Lourdes, and then the 4 o'clock Mass at the kind of sister parish. The, the There's a pastor who's, like we find in a lot of cities, you know, has multiple churches under kind of one parish oversight. And so I have the 4 o'clock at Our Lady of the Rosary, and then the 6 o'clock at Lourdes. So that's always fun, and it's good to see, uh, you know, the parishioners that I grew up with, and... Uh, see my family and and uh, all my nieces and nephews. The the family Haran just keeps getting larger and larger, with it, which is exciting. Yeah, absolutely. What about you guys? Do you go to Pittsburgh or we, something? Or? We do. We so we will be uh, leaving on Friday. The kids get out of school early that day, and we will leave the parish school. And they don't have to dress in their normal uniforms. So we will get right in the car and we will drive to Cincinnati, and we will stay the night in Cincinnati, which is a, a joyous time for us. We. We are big fans of the Rust Belt, and so <laughs> right here. Yeah. I, although I think my favorite is Cleveland over Cincinnati. Well, and and so everybody has their favorites. Degustibus non est disputandum. That's true. But uh, we we have a hotel that we like to stay in, the Netherland Plaza Hilton, and oh. it's just a beautiful hotel. If you are if you're a fan of old style kind of grandeur, uh, it's similar to the Palmer House here in Chicago. Oh, it's got yeah, kind of yeah. filigrees and and painted ceilings and beautiful ballrooms and. We tend to stay there if we can, and so we're going to stay the night there and then get up early in the morning and drive the rest of the way to Pittsburgh, and like you, we'll be with the family for Christmas and then uh, close into the new year, so several days there in Pittsburgh, and then we'll be back, and then my wife goes back to work, and I am on childcare duty until the kids go back on the 6th, and so that's that's the way these things roll. That's exciting. Yeah. Are the kids excited about that? They are. They love their grandparents, and that's great. And they also love just the they love being in that area because they they've gone there enough that they have friends and connections that are not family related as well. And so they're looking forward to catching up with some of those folks too. I uh, I got into big trouble a couple weeks ago when um, I was well, now it's a couple months ago in October I was giving a lecture in Cleveland, and I had told the person who was kind of the person who picked me up from the airport and all this that uh, I'm a big fan of, of like you, these various Rust Belt cities. And, and growing up in Utica, New York, it's it's kind of a, a part of the same. You know, it's a much smaller city, but it's it's of, of the sort. And I said, you know, I think the two most underrated cities in the United States are Cleveland and Pittsburgh. And, and I love both of these places. And I, you know, I just think the world of them. And I thought that, that that would be well-received. But let me tell you, when this person was introducing me for the talk, he mentioned this. And I thought, 
these folks could not have grabbed the pitchforks and torches fast enough to run me out of town because how dare I put Pittsburgh in the same level as Cleveland. And then I realized it was this whole baseball-football rivalry sort of thing, you know, and it was, it was about the Steelers and the Browns and all this kind of stuff. And so, A prophet is never honored in his own rust belt. <laughs> that's true. That's true. <laughs> and I don't like that term. I mean, I use it because it is what it is, but it's like... I don't know. Those cities, you know, Buffalo, New York, I, I, I was at Buffalo earlier this month for, for a different board meeting. And some of these great kind of turn of the 19th, 20th century cities are just extraordinary. And the architecture, it's much like Chicago. They're all little Chicagos, right? These beautiful... Uh, we're going to get hate for saying that, too. <laughs> <laughs> I know. <laughs> I think we're pretty used to that at this point, too. Anyways, it's just a shout out. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a love, a verbal love letter to, uh, you know, to these, these great cities that I don't think get a lot of cred because of, you know, the, the, the flight that's taken place to the south, uh, jobs that have, you know, they've been devastated, under, you know, understandably so with, you know, this loosening of, of trade, you know, which kind of fits in with the topic today of economic inequality that, you know, the few people who uh, live in, in these great cities, places like Cincinnati and, and Cleveland and Buffalo and Syracuse, New York, and so forth. You know, it's interesting. I, I listened to an interview with this this new author who is who did his MFA at, under George Saunders at Syracuse. Extraordinary writer. And it's just striking to think, Syracuse, yeah, that actually is a place that has one of the best writing programs in the country, but it's such a depressed area. And I, I mean, this is my home turf. This is my backyard. Anyway, as all this is to say that in, in places like that, you know, this, this notion of economic inequality, the gap just continues to grow. That, that there are very, very few people who live there and they live very comfortably and there are increasingly larger groups of people who can barely survive and, and there aren't many resources and much access to, to a better life. Well, as we're moving into the, the bulk of the episode, uh, I think now's a good time to say to our listeners, we appreciate so much the fact that you've been with us and your comments, and several of you have written to us over the course of the, the season, expressing interest in the topics that we're bringing out and, and thanking us in some ways for tackling these topics. We just want to say thank you for that and thank you for your support of the show. If you have a chance, please tell your friends about the show. We'd love to we'd love to get the word out because if this is speaking to you, it's probably going to speak to others that are similarly situated to you. And as always, if you haven't subscribed yet or have commented on iTunes and Apple Podcasts and those other platforms, that would be a great way to help us get the word out as well. And we we're just so thankful that you're listening and that you like what you hear. And we wish you all a blessed Christmas and New Year holiday and uh, or whatever other holiday season you're celebrating. We're really grateful for you, uh, and we will keep you in our thoughts and prayers. Hello, this is David, uh, outside the podcast realm for the moment, just talking to you in advertising land. If you're enjoying the conversation that we're having, I want to make sure that you're aware that I do another show as well called Things Not Seen, Conversations About Culture and Faith. That's a weekly show that's been on since 2011, and we've talked to some amazing guests. It's basically a long-form interview where we get a chance to talk about how faith animates a person's life. We talk to authors and politicians and tastemakers and musicians, any kinds of folks that have some sort of faith component to their lives. So I'd love it if you get if you gave that a chance, too, and gave that a listen. That's at thingsnotseenradio.com. That's thingsnotseenradio.com. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.
Welcome back to The Francis Effect. I'm Dan Haran, and I'm here with David Dalt. Every couple of weeks, we get together to discuss news, culture, and politics informed by the perspective of our Catholic faith. This season, we have been taking a deep dive into questions around tensions and frustrations in the Catholic Church. We're really excited this week to have with us Dr. Kate Ward, who is Assistant Professor of Theological Ethics at Marquette University, and whose research has focused on economic inequality in Catholic ethics in the United States context. And she's currently completing a manuscript on economic inequality as it pertains to uh, virtue. Kate, we're really excited to have you. Thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. This is a topic that I've really wanted to get into all season because, for me, these issues really cut across the other issues of identity that we've been seeing. So we've been talking about Latino, Latina, Latinx issues. We've been talking about African-American issues. We've been talking about sexuality issues. But when we talk about economics, and particularly the question of class, that begins to really cut across all those other demographic issues and can really make much more complex the questions that we're talking about. So when we're talking, first of all, about economic inequality, help us to get oriented. What What is the level of the problem that we're looking at here in the United States? Sure. I, I was thinking the same thing about how it really links a lot of the frustrations in the church that your series has been discussing, thinking about parishes that may be targeted for closure, even though they're vibrant. Latinx or black parishes are great centers of Catholic life, but not the most wealthy places. You know, that's a symptom of inequality. I think it has links with the sex crisis, too, and, you know, we can get into that later on. You know, a lot of Catholics probably that Christians are called to work against poverty and that the levels of poverty we see there are not part of God's will. But thinking about equality, right, we're talking about gaps between the wealthy and the poor, in terms of income or in terms of wealth, and not just the fact that gaps exist. You know, it's not about people sort of shaking their fists and saying, oh, this guy has a yacht, and that makes me sad. But inequality translates into unequal quality of life on many, many standards of measurement, right? So it affects political voice. One of the best researchers on this is Katie Lehman Schlossman at Boston College. Folks with higher income have a better ability to express their voice in a political arena um, than poorer folks do. It translates into health disparities, lifespan disparities. So it's really not just about sort of class resentment or, you know, feeling sad that you don't have the same consumer power as someone else. It's really unequal access to the goods that make life a truly human life. And it's a problem in its own right. And you use that phrase... I guess, quality of life, and another way that Catholics sometimes talk about this is human flourishing. What does quality of life look like from a Catholic perspective? What is our metric for quality of life? So I would say basic goods such as um, health, you know, food, shelter, the goods needed to kind of sustain the human animal, and then access to the goods that make a human life truly human. So a big one, Catholic social thought standpoint, would be participation in society, in the political process, access to work, to education, to an engaged social life. Um, And those are all also goods that inequality kind of hands out disparate access to. Kate, you you talked about, um, you know, the research that shows that economic inequality affects 
people's participation in kind of civic spheres, you know, their political voice is not the same as those who have economic resources or certain social status. And I'm thinking of, again, the, this notion of tensions and frustrations in the church. Are, are there ways from your vantage point that you see the voice in the church being affected as well by economic inequality that because of means, because of disproportionate wealth, some voices are heard more than others or have influenced? I mean, how does that play out, do you think, in, in like kind of the U.S. ecclesiastical politics? Yep, absolutely. I do think there is a similar kind of analogy to the U.S. political system in terms of disparity of access with income in the church. So parish closings, uh, like I was saying, would be one example of that, that um, a parish that can be very vibrant in terms of numbers, but is not the most wealthy financially, might be targeted for a closing if economic issues are forced in that. And we've seen that in Austin. Nicole Flores just had that great example in America about how that was happening in Denver. So that's unfortunately a common story. And another example at the higher end, in response to the latest sex abuse allegations, there was this news story that this group of business, Catholic business leaders, Ladatus, was holding donations to the tune of more than $800,000 of ties to the Vatican. You know, and I think that's a legitimate way for lay people to express their frustrations, right, with the pocketbook, but it's kind of instructive to think about the, the impact of that voice, right, of withholding a donation of that size versus, you know, my mom withholding her $10 when she goes to Mass. Like many of us know folks in our family who are trying to express their voice in that way, so there's that too. When you're talking about the links to the sex abuse crisis and the withholding of these large donations, it's, it's got me thinking, too, about, you know, the ways in which people with money are typically people who have access. And, and you're describing this kind of at an institutional level or a kind of foundation level. I mean, we've seen this in the United States with big organizations like the Knights of Columbus. We've seen it in all these other sorts of foundations and groups that come together. And... I think this is something that the average Catholic Christian doesn't pay much attention to, that what gets sort of, in a speaking of economics, in a kind of Reaganomics trickle-down way, a lot of the kind of leadership points of interest or, or focal points tend to be governed or at least influenced by a smaller group of people who have a lot of financial resources that then then therefore get a lot of attention and have the ears of church leaders. And one example that comes to mind, and this is just a hypothesis, so I'd be interested to know what you think about this, is back in the, uh, maybe about 10 years ago or so, around the time of the financial crisis in the U.S., 2008, 2009, there was this weird turn among the U.S. bishops, at least among a certain vocal group of them, to talk about religious liberty, and this became a big thing, you know, it was in the wake of the um, Affordable Care Act, but then there was this whole thing about this fortnight for freedom and so on and so forth. Is, is that a fair example of how this kind of disproportionate wealth influences, you know, church politics? Uh, what? A, a campaign called the fortnight of something isn't the best indicator that the church is in touch with the concerns of regular people is that's a word that I use all the time. <laughs> it's right. It's right after four score, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Right. Um, yeah. I, I would look back to that time in history too. I was also thinking about the affordable care act, you know, Catholic participation in public life is always, you know, this, there's tension between the fullness of Catholic teaching and 
what's achievable in a pluralistic society, right? And the decision that the bishops made not to support the Affordable Care Act because of contraceptive access when it increased access to life-saving health care for so many folks, you know, that's, that's a decision that has implications, and we heard a lot of that about that time. Right, the idea that religious liberty is freedom from something, right, instead of being free to, you know, live and go to the doctor so that you can continue to practice your faith. That's uh, an idea coming from a pretty privileged standpoint. Well, and so when I was a professor of Catholic studies that 10 years ago, I got invited by a parish to go and speak at one of these fortnights for freedom. And I stood up at the podium and I, I said, you know, I'm... I'm a professor of Catholic studies. I, I take seriously my, my obligations as a professor under, you know, Ex Cordia Ecclesiae and Canon 812. But I also said, you know, I, I'm identifying here in front of you as a person who takes socialism very seriously and the redistribution of wealth very seriously, caveat emptor. The response that I got from that afterwards from Catholics was so, so pointed. They, they said, you know, how can you be a person who who advocates the redistribution of wealth. You're a Catholic. And I said, I, I read the Acts of the Apostles. The early, the early church did this. And, uh, and, you know, there are other successful communities that have done this. And for me, it, it's a no-brainer that we are supposed to take care of the least of these among us. What are some of the hesitations that you've encountered when you've been talking to Catholic populations about these questions of economics and virtue? What are some of the resistance and pinch points you encounter when you try and alert people to this part of the Christian tradition? Sure. Um, yeah, there, there are several. Like you say, this discomfort with the word socialism, or sometimes even anything that has social in front of it, like social justice, social welfare— it's like this boogeyman that, you know, there's no ability to distinguish between family grant policies like they have in Great Britain and total central control, you know, like they maintain in communist China. So there's a, a need for education and expanding people's imagination about that. I was just in this really great book by Matt Shadle called Interrupting Capitalism, where he explores different political models that have surrounded the creation of different Catholic approaches to the economy. So it's really helpful for that, for seeing that, yep, there are different economic realities that have coexisted with Catholic social thought. Another resistance that people have is that, you know, we do have in the Gospels some stories of, you know, generous giving in upheld as, as a form of discipleship, and that translates into, well, I need the one to give my wealth, right? Uh, contributing in taxes, which supports the common good, that's not me giving. So that, um, you know, I need to keep more of my wealth so that I can then give it away, which is kind of an The way I often talk about that dynamic is, um, I, I call it the flight attendant method, where people uh, take too seriously the flight attendant's instructions. And I always make the, add the caveat that when you're on an airplane, it's okay to put your mask on first before helping others. But when it comes to earning income and, and distributing it to others, it's not cover my back first. Christianity has some very strong things to say about that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 
Kate, I'm, I'm wondering about, um, so in anticipation of our conversation today, I went back and read an excellent article that I recommend to our listeners that you and my fellow Franciscan friar and, and uh, theological ethicist, Father Ken Himes, co-authored in 2014, an excellent issue of theological studies, I should say, all around, for no biased reason. <laughs> but in that article where you talked about economic inequality and talked about the various forms of economic inequality, whether it's income inequality, wealth inequality, and so forth, I was really struck again by one of the things that you and Ken talk about in your conclusion, which I had never really thought about before. And that is, and, I, and my guess is that many of our listeners may, may not have as well, which is you and, and Ken assert that from the Catholic theological perspective, even if we were to raise folks who are living in poverty or at the border of poverty up to a point, and I love the caveat, of course, very Franciscan, that provided that it doesn't unduly tax the kind of sustainability of the environment, if we were able to raise everybody up to a quality of life that is meeting the basic goods of human flourishing, even then, if there was a disparity in wealth, you know, if there was an inequality between the the 1% and the poor, even if the poor were doing just fine, that would still be problematic. And I wonder if you can talk about that and, and how... You know, the Catholic tradition, the theological tradition, ethics and virtue play a role in that assessment. Yeah, I think that's a big part of thinking about why are inequality and poverty overlapping but distinct problems. And the the big distinction there is that inequality is um, a form of segregation. And in our Christian anthropology, we understand that we're created for community and to be with others who may be needy, to be with others who are not like us. This is, you know, the way that God created us and the way that we image the divine in our life is to be in relationships. And inequality tends to hinder that in very serious ways. You know, it allows people who are well-off or comfortable to go about their lives and rarely encounter um, someone's or to have, you know, relatively little idea of what a life in poverty is even like, right? So... A lot of middle-class folks I know think that, you know, all poor people are homeless or all are people of color or something like that and aren't familiar with the realities of working poverty in the U.S. or that the majority of poor folks in the U.S. are white. There's this segregation that inequality imposes, um, and this is, you know, what I like to talk about as really harmful to our morality because, again, we're creative relationship with each other a social structure or a social sin like inequality that opposes that is keeping us from being the types of persons God has called us to be. You said something there, too, that really struck me. And, and again, and then that article um, was I found very, very uh, powerful, which is that in the distancing, the segregation that inequality, e- economic inequality causes, just like racial inequality or gender inequality, all these other various forms of breaking of relationship. And even if somebody is mindful, and I'd like to think of myself at times as, as somewhat aware and, and certainly called as a Franciscan friar to be mindful of the oftentimes overlooked and forgotten, the voiceless poor, the working poor, the abject poor, like you mentioned, the homeless, but also those who are working three or four jobs and and have to choose between food and medication or clothing a child and so forth. But I was, I was, even I was taken back a few years ago when giving a retreat out in the Midwest. I was up in um, 
not rural Iowa, but I mean, I don't know that there are many major metropolitan areas in Iowa. I'm sure I'm going to hear a whole bunch from folks now about <laughs> saying exactly that. But, but I was in a city in Iowa and I was talking to a community of religious sisters and I used some examples in giving this retreat on St. Francis and Pope Francis. And during the break, one of the sisters, a very, let's say, senior sister, um, an octogenarian, came up to me and she, she started telling me the story about her own childhood of growing up in the plains in the early part of the 20th century and what the experience of rural poverty was like. And that all of my examples were really indicative of my kind of adulthood growing up in urban settings in the East Coast. And it struck me that here's a whole portion of the population that's largely, in terms of intersectionality, largely white, that is not oftentimes considered when we think of the poor. And when I say we, I, I think those people who are in positions of leadership in the church, of, of authority, those who are active ministers, those of us in the academy, you up in Milwaukee, me here in Chicago, you know, folks in positions like ours. And it just kind of hit me that she was right. I, I Here I was thinking I was mindful of a certain population that I was, but then there's this whole other population. I don't know if you can speak a little bit about your own observations and your own research about those populations that don't often get recognized or considered, that just fall off to the edges. You know, it's sort of, to borrow that phrase from Mother Teresa, that we don't live in a in a, an explicitly caste system where we have untouchables, but there are kind of grades of poverty and inequality, right? The poorest of the poor in our own communities. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and there are grades in terms of access, and education is a big proxy for that. It, it makes me think of one thing I wanted to make sure we cover was attention at the level of uh, the bishop's conference to issues of poverty and inequality, not that the bishops are the church, but part of talking about the church response to it. And what you said made me think about economic justice for all, um, the 1966 uh, letter on economic realities. It was very attentive to rural issues. There's a lot in there about small family farms being bought and consolidated and people losing a traditional way of life, which was a big issue at the time. You know, it's very sensitive. There's a lot of particularity in describing the reality of different living experiences of poverty. And then um, you both might remember in 2012, we tried to do another economic letter. It was kind of a fiasco and uh, ended up, I think rightly so, being voted down. And that was kind of that. Um, since the financial crisis of 2008, there hasn't been a major response, a coordinated response in that way from the U.S. bishops as that one letter did fail. Well, this this picks up on something that my wife pointed out to me oftentimes when she was an editor at U.S. Catholic. Whenever there was an issue of sexuality that came through the legislature or what have you, they would, within a half an hour of whatever announcement, they would get a fax from the USCCB, the, the Council of Bishops. But whenever there was an economic issue, whenever there was an issue of equity or, or those kinds of things, the USCCB was silent, and she was very frustrated by this fact. What is it that makes economic issues so difficult? What makes it a third rail for the bishops right now? Geez, it should be easy, right? It shouldn't be a third rail. It, it should be, you know, something that nobody disagrees that this is an important part of our teaching and the church record and commitment to it is pretty clear. I don't know, you know, I think uh, there is kind of this 
unfortunate analogy to quote-unquote regular U.S. politics where the culture wars are the things that get attention that people sort of build their reputations on and you can always get a reliable response by talking about those issues with whichever side you're on and, you know, economic inequality, poverty are just not as sexy as... Yeah, no, it's dispiriting. That, that story is not surprising, but it's very dispiriting. I wonder too, Kate, I'm, I'm just thinking about... What we were talking about earlier, too, and it strikes me that part of it is, and, and again, I, I mean, maybe I'm going out on a limb and, you know, and this is not true. I don't mean to paint with such a broad brush with all the bishops, but there is an analog with civil politics and politicians, right? Where although politicians are ostensibly elected by an electorate and bishops are not, nevertheless, the bishops depend on those major donations, mm-hmm. you know? So if the bishops are sitting around and deciding what they're going to comment on, if what they're going to release a statement about in 2012 is going to upset, for instance, you know, CEOs or major donors to their diocese when they need to refurbish the cathedral or something, they might think twice about it. Is that too cynical? I don't know. I think that's a unfortunate reality, sure. You know, and I, I don't terribly blame them, I guess. It's, yeah, like I was saying, just an unfortunate reality. And, you know, we have it in Catholic higher ed, too, right? There are certain issues that you know, okay, staff up the phones, we're going to get some calls about this. I mean, and in higher ed, it's part of our charism to talk about these tough issues. But, yeah, sometimes you just know this is going to get a big response from a certain unrepresentative sector of the Catholic faithful, and you've got to kind of batten down the hatches for a while. Well, and Kate, this is David again. Dan's point makes me think of the recent $15 million donation from Amazon to various Catholic charities. And when that came through, my parish tweeted that out and said, oh, this is, you know, this is good news. And I responded to that social media post with paragraph 1753 of the Catechism, which is you can't use the good ends of something to justify the means of getting something. So even though the Catholic charities are benefiting, from this $15 million donation, we have to look at the ways in which Amazon went about getting that windfall and what that represents in terms of human dignity. And human dignity is not necessarily, when I think of Amazon, I don't think of necessarily the flourishing of human dignity. How, How do we help parishes and how do we help our fellow Catholics begin to understand that these dollar donations that sometimes go to things like Catholic charities, we have to look at the roots of them just in the same way that we look at the ways in which so the bishops are quick to say if there are ties to things like Planned Parenthood in terms of our political participation, how do we enliven people to our economic participation in human dignity and human flourishing? Yeah, there is still this real um, mindset of sort of a charity mindset, right? Like, ooh, that's a high-dollar donation without looking at the system that produced these great disparities in wealth that enable high-dollar donations and the fact that they're often coming from very destructive business practices that are destructive to human lives. It's interesting. There are really ancient stories, a lot of faith traditions, about a holy person, you know, in a, in a context where religious folks are, are begging for subsistence, who doesn't want to beg from someone who got their money in an unjust way. And then when they have to go do so, you know, the money turns into blood in the sack. Dorothy Gay told a story like that about a Christian saint. And I just read one from um, the Hindu tradition. I thought, wow, that's fascinating. You know, this is this systemic understanding, right, that 
wealth isn't just wealth. It's not just a resource. It can be the fruit of exploitation. You know, this is very ancient in a lot of religious traditions. You know, and people in the parishes are practical. They're like, hey, we need to keep the lights on. We need to keep the school open. We got a donation. It's great. But, yeah, I think there's our, our tradition gets so many resources to educate around the whole system that produces this wealth. And not just to denounce and say, oh, this is terrible, but hopefully to envision better alternatives. You're listening to the Francis Effect podcast. We'll be right back in a minute with Dr. Kate Ward. The Francis Effect is made possible in part by our wonderful supporters at Patreon. Go to patreon.com slash francisfxpod to find out about how you can join them. A couple of dollars a month really adds up, and we appreciate it. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash francisfxpod. Thank you. You're listening to The Francis Effect. I'm David Dalt. I'm here with my friend Dan Haran. Every couple of weeks, we get together to bring you issues and perspectives informed through a lens of our Catholic faith. We're speaking today with Kate Ward from Marquette University. We're talking about economic inequality and Catholic virtue and ethics. So I wanted to pick up on something that we've touched on a little bit, but to really bring it back into kind of Catholic stories and mythology. I'm thinking, I've been meditating a lot lately on the story of St. Lawrence the Martyr, And for those that are unfamiliar with the story, during one of the persecutions, the Romans came and said to St. Lawrence, you know, we're going to come back tomorrow and we expect you to have in a bag all the riches of the church, so have it ready for us. And so what St. Lawrence did in that day was he went and he sold all the candlesticks, he sold everything else, he distributed it to the poor, and then he, he brought all of the poor with him to the, the Romans, and he said, they, they said, we, we want the riches of the church. Where are they? And he said, these are the true riches of the church. In fact, you know, we are far richer than the emperor, and he was killed for that. But that speaks to a certain history that Catholics talk about when we think about the martyrs and we think about the saints, but it's not a history that we live in American Catholicism and maybe in worldwide Catholicism, when we actually think about the ways in which we are supposed to be advocating for the least of these among us, what are some of the ways that Catholics can be brought back not only to tell these stories, but to live these kinds of stories? Yeah, that's that's something I think about a lot, just in thinking about my own life, too. So I love to teach the life story and the witness of Dorothy Day to students because, you know, we do Catholic social thought with the systemic analysis and the third way, and they're like, well, this is a little radical, but I see it has some good points. And then we do Dorothy Day, and they're like, oh, no, this is bonkers. This like, <laughs> this is part of the Christian tradition. You know, you got to be kidding me. So it's fun. <laughs> you know, there, there are different expressions of trying to live out faith and economic life throughout the Catholic tradition. But the more I, I look at these, lifestyles of voluntary poverty and you know we're talking with someone who has one that just seems to me like the purest expression of christian faith so thinking about how are those of us who maybe have families or who are trying to pursue different careers how can we take these more prophetic evangelical aspects of the faith tradition and really live them out in light so a great resource that i always consult for this is a book called family ethics by the theologian julie hamlin rubio which is very accessible um, and gives kind of a history of the Christian tradition on different family practices. And one of them that she talks about is tithing. So she talks about how practicing tithing in a serious way can allow families to kind of carry out that desire to live with less 
that's salutary in a moral sense that teaches us to be content with less and be grateful for what we have. It um, enables us to contribute a lot to those who are in need. And it, so it's a practice that sort of tries to bridge the extreme of voluntary poverty and the other extreme of, you know, the typical sort of American consumerist lifestyle. That's a wonderful resource that you just said, family ethics. When we think about this, Dan has brought this up in other programs, that the entire word that we have for economy has to do with the, the, the root of that word, has to do with how one ordered one's household in the past. So this there really is a connection yeah. between family politics, family economics, and the way that we live in the world, isn't there? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's um, another underappreciated resource, I think, looking at how, how do we live in our families, how do we live in our parishes. And there's another kind of many, many unfortunate analogies, right, between church life and U.S. politics, right, which is that we like to focus on the people at the top and what they do and what we should be doing. And there's so much richness and potential closer to the, quote-unquote, grassroots. Well, it's interesting, too. I th- I'm just thinking now about even the kind of bizarre, if not cruel, forms of entertainment, particularly with television that we have in this country, where... On the one hand, it's either the kind of cribs mentality or the apprentice with Donald Trump, and we see what what, what that has led to. On the one hand, you know, this kind of glamorizing of a, of a certain sort of spectacle and, and 1% sort of perspective. Or on the other hand, it's it's cops or Jerry Springer, right? It's this kind of looking down upon the spectacle of... Um, of the grotesque poor, which which is uh, both extremes are, are deeply disturbing. Following up on uh, talking about the family practices with uh, uh, Julie Rubio's work and, um, and and what we've been talking about has been sort of kind of at the larger level. I'm I'm interested in in kind of getting down to the parish level, to kind of the individual level of what the experience might be for Catholic Christians who experience the, not the 1%, maybe not even the top 80%, but but the ones who are really struggling to get by and are on the flip side of, of economic inequality. I, I know, Kate, I mean, I, full disclosure for our listeners, Kate and I went to school together at, at Boston College, you know, go Eagles. And so we know each other pretty well. And, and I know that you've done a lot of work um, in, in previous years in organizing and, and union work and that kind of stuff in, in terms of, of social justice and social organizing. And I also know that this academic work around economic inequality is deeply rooted in your own personal faith convictions and convictions about social justice. And so w- with that in mind, I'm just wondering if, if you could talk a little bit about from your work and from your experience, from conversations that you've had with people, from the kind of ministries and research that you've done, how for, for our listeners who might not know what the day in and day out tensions and frustrations for somebody experiencing either poverty or maybe we say the flip side of economic inequality in the Catholic parish, what is that like? Are there things that you can help people to understand with that it may not see, you know, the upper middle class folks typically? Yeah, sure. Um, I think this is a huge part of thinking about inequality in the U.S. Catholic Church because Catholics are very, um, on a lot of levels, pretty representative of the U.S. So we, our, our income mirrors a lot of the economic inequality that's prevalent across the U.S. population. 36% of Catholic families um, are making less than 36000 a year, which, you know, certainly in a city like Milwaukee and a lot of places, one would struggle to live on that as a family, even if you're technically above the U.S. federal poverty level. 
So there is, you know, I think still a sense in which talking about poverty or inequality, it's like, is this an us an us issue or is it a them issue? Um, and we have to see that it really is an us issue when we're looking at the whole of the Catholic family. Folks who are poor and working poor are part of parishes. They have a lot to contribute. They have important voices. And I think it's too easy in in a system where economic inequality is real to kind of overlook those voices. So what I see happening that's good is in um, parish settings where there are real concerted efforts made to include folks. Like I'm, I'm part of a parish that has food pantry that is really wonderfully sensitive to systemic issues, and they have folks who are current and former clients of the food pantry on the board. Everybody who comes in to volunteer, you know, for their school, high school service hours or whatever gets training on the systemic issues of poverty, so it's kind of a sneaky, ha, you thought you were doing charity and now we're doing systemic analysis. So there are really positive things going on in that way. One really heartening thing that I've seen is, is actually in Pope Francis's encyclical on the family, um, Amoris Laetitia, where he's talking about the need to reach out to single-parent families and the need to be really realistic about the challenges that families face. Because I feel like in U.S. Catholic parishes, this is such a huge issue where um, family stuff presumes two parents, it presumes, you know, a certain schedule, it presumes the soccer, and, you know, we know that marriage is kind of becoming a stratified class-based luxury in the U.S., right? You're much more likely to get married and stay married if both of you went to college. And for folks who are struggling, it's not that they don't value marriage, they do value it very highly, but they struggle to find folks who are appealing partners. There's a lot of economic pressure, and there's there are a lot of ways in which economic pressures drive, you know, what sociologists call recoupling. So that's, I think, a big area where the church depicts something as sort of a personal, private morality issue where it's deeply systemic, and we really haven't woken up to that. Well, and the morality that's tied to that is that if you somehow don't demonstrate that middle-class reality, you've somehow failed or you are deficient in a moral sense. And that's tied in not only to Catholic thinking, but that's that's deeply ingrained in sort of the general Christian way of thinking, isn't it? Oh, yeah, big time. Well, and so, again, you know, I'm always thinking about practical solutions. What sort of counter-narratives can we bring as Catholics, and particularly as Catholic educators, to help to stem the tide of these kinds of poisonous moral messages? That's a great question. What kind of counter-narratives can we bring? I'm thinking about that. And I'm just thinking about um, who we elevate as leaders in parishes, who gets invited to speak, who gets invited to lead. I don't think I have a brilliant solution to that, but I think it's kind of a daily, weekly, monthly practice. So when we think about kind of an examination of conscience, uh, oftentimes that ties to moral questions, but we can also think about an examination of conscience with regard to our economic practices, the ways that we demonstrate our solidarity with the poor in the world, those kinds of things. Am I on the right track? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I like that image of an examination of conscience. And I think it's there's a need for both narratives and representation and sort of practical practical practices. There's coinage for you. I think one thing that Morris actually suggests, which is just so beautifully concrete, is offering childcare at um, church events. You know, for parents who maybe 
working or single parents who need help being able to be at some kind of event at the church. I love that. And that's something, I mean, I know the three of us as academics are all familiar with is, is become, you know, uh, an important issue in academic conferences and these other sorts of things too, that particularly those with, with children, if, if they don't come from, you know, what, what you said earlier, Kate, this kind of luxury setup where you have two partners who have the flexibility perhaps to, to watch the children while one of the partners goes and does something professional and so forth. How else are people able to make it or to, to flourish in their respective fields? So that's really important. As we kind of wrap up our conversation, I'm wondering if, if you have thoughts not only about the kind of recasting of narrative like David asked, which this conversation has been really insightful, but are there practical things, those practical practices you talked about that our listeners might be able to embrace, particularly in this you know, holiday season, we're here at, at Christmas time and, and the new year is upon us. It's a time for people to make resolutions. Hopefully they stick to uh, resolutions that seek better uh, equality more than they might seek going to the gym on a regular basis or whatever those resolutions people drop pretty quickly are. Um, but I'm thinking on, on the individual or even the, the kind of family or community levels, do you have suggestions for our listeners about what they might be able to do as the new year approaches? Oh, what a great question. Yeah, so thinking about how inequality, you know, creates segregation and how we can work in our daily lives to fight that, I think that's a wonderful thing to think about. And Pope Francis honestly talks about this all the time, like seeking out encounter, going to the margins, the places where you might feel uncomfortable. So just thinking about the ways in which in your life, if you're an economically comfortable person, you don't encounter people in poverty. And again, that's not just homeless people, right? This is the working poor. This is neighborhoods that are struggling, which now are in the suburbs too. How can we embrace the discomfort of being with folks who are at different economic levels with us in our everyday lives? And I think there is a daily practice, right? I think there's a way in which just riding the bus, if you don't normally ride the bus, is really a practice of encounter. And that's great. I think for a lot of us, you know, we need to be thinking about where we live um, and the types of schools that we want to send our kids to and how we envision, you know, thriving neighborhoods and thriving schools. And that's probably a whole a whole another big conversation, but I really do think uh, this issue of economic segregation is just the type of thing that Christians are called to tackle um, and really show up for in bold and prophetic ways. Well, thank you very much. We want to thank you, Dr. Kate Ward, Assistant Professor of Theological Ethics at Marquette, for joining us. And uh, we wish you a, a wonderful Christmas season and New Year. And, and thanks for taking the time to, to talk with us. Oh, what a delight to be with you. Thanks so much to both of you. The Francis Effect podcast is produced by Sandberg Media. We recorded the show at the William Adams Studios here in beautiful Hyde Park on the south side of Chicago, Illinois. The opinions expressed on this program are our own and do not reflect the position of any institutions with which we might be affiliated. We have production space courtesy of the Zygon Center for Religion and Science, part of the Lutheran School of Theology at Chicago. They're not responsible for the content of this program, but they're wonderful folks, and you should look them up at zygoncenter.org. That's Z-Y-G-O-N-Center.org. We also want to give a shout-out to our friends at Salt and Light Catholic Media Foundation. They're also not responsible for the content of this program, but they gave us their kind permission to use the name The Francis Effect, and we appreciate it. Check out their good work at saltandlighttv.org. 
We're supported by listeners like you. If you want to join us in this bold adventure, you can go to patreon.com slash francisfxpod. Again, that's patreon.com slash francisfxpod. We appreciate it very much. You can follow us on Twitter and Facebook at FrancisFXPod. That's Francis, the letters F and X, and the word pod. Likewise, our website is FrancisFXPod.com. If you want to send us a question or comment, you can always talk to Frank by emailing FrancisEffectPod at gmail.com. That's effect spelled out like the word. And if you're here for the first time, welcome. We've got a bunch of episodes from three seasons now that you can listen to. So go back and check them all out and share them with your friends. Thank you again for listening. Have a blessed Advent and a Merry Christmas.